Good morning. Happy December 16th. Simeon, what's the, what's the latest hourly countdown until school is out? Yes, 35. All right, that is a countdown that is currently happening in our house. So, even if you're not school age and not in school, rejoice with the kids in my house that school is coming to an end very soon. Um, I've been thinking a lot about home recently. This morning's sermon is called Waiting for Jesus by Longing for Home. Two weeks ago, we talked about waiting for Jesus by remembering death. And last week, who can remember? Waiting for Jesus. Oh, was I here by myself last week? (laughs) By staying awake, staying awake. Mark 13, looking towards Christ's return. All right? This morning... Waiting for Jesus by longing for home. I've been thinking a lot about home, as I said, uh, over the last few months. In particular, a specific home. And this home is not in Chicago. It's not where I live, but it's where I've spent a number of significant days in my life. This home is at the end of a cul-de-sac, at the top of a hill, in St. Charles, Missouri. And... That home was actually just sold two days ago. A few weeks ago, over Thanksgiving weekend, I was down there clearing out that home, packing it up in a U-Haul to bring a lot of the stuff from that home back here. That home was a cherished home. That home was worked on. That home was protected. It was guarded. It was cleaned. It was remodeled. That home was cared for. But that home, though I will miss it, and the times that I've spent there, my, my wife and kids have been there, and my siblings and my parents have spent there, that home is not full. We, it's been sold, and we'll miss it, we'll miss that block. But it's not fully a home that we identify with anymore because the man who lived there is no longer in that home. Um, On October 15, 2018, my grandfather, Arthur Lawrence Tapey, went home to be with the Lord. And Grandpa had lived in that home for over 25 years most of that time as a widower. And the Lord took him very quickly over a few months and he went home to be with the Lord. He is now, in the true definition, living in his forever home. And I know that's a term that gets thrown around a lot, especially for HDTV files. But... He is in his forever home now. And as dearly as he loved that home and we loved gathering there with him, he is at home with the Lord. He is also at home, or will be at home, I should say, in a resurrection body. He doesn't have that yet, but it is coming. So this morning, we're talking about waiting for Jesus by longing for home. 
I can't say everything about eternity today, sorry, otherwise we would be here for an eternity. And a lot of that would turn into guessing and conjecture and maybe even sanctified imagination, which is not bad, let me tell you. If you read Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, he admits sanctified imagination, biblically sound conjecture can be okay. It, it arouses our hearts to look to eternity when we start wondering about eternity. It's what Jonathan Edwards did when he wandered through the fields of New England considering what heaven would be like. What will that day be like when Christ returns and takes me to be with him? It's what actually developed such a beautiful and robust love for God in him. It stirred his affections because he meditated on what heaven would be like. Well, this morning, we're actually going to go to an interesting place to consider eternity, and it's actually a place of correction that can hopefully correct our view a little bit and, again, arouse our affections to look and long for home. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are here this morning, and I thank you that you're with Grandpa this morning, too. I thank you that he is at home with you and that all of those who, by faith, have trusted in you for the forgiveness of their sins, we are on that road as well. But I thank you that you are here too and you are invested in this time and we get to look at your very word this morning. Stir our affections for you. Stir our affections for eternity in in ways that are only possible through the work of your spirit, we ask. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? It's on page 961 in your pew Bible. As a way of brief introduction, Laura Hunt presents a unique description of the Corinthian church as the not very persecuted church. The not very persecuted church of Corinth. Basically saying this, Whereas we hear about other cities in the Roman Empire that were persecuted and Christians there had a really difficult time, in Corinth that wasn't the case. In Corinth, they were not persecuted. And what ended up happening was there set in a certain spiritual apathy and moral laxity in Corinth because they did not have the refining effect of persecution visited upon them, like other brothers and sisters throughout the Roman world. So what the Corinthians ended up doing was because they were not being refined by persecution, they were at home in the world. They weren't longing for capital H, home. They were home. So I think it's appropriate for us. I don't want to put that on you saying, we are Corinth. We are somehow just obsessed with the here and now, but maybe we are, especially during this season of get, get, get. And even our give, give, give brings into our minds a whole lot of the here and now. Let's at least put it this way. Like the fog this morning that was so heavy upon our city needed to be blown away, we need to see clearly and have the fog blown so that we can see eternity and long for it. That's what Paul is 
seeking to do in 1 Corinthians 15 is reawaken a hope for home. I'm going to preach in a little bit different way this morning than I, than I typically do. I'm, I actually wrote something, and that's going to carry us through until I give a few more pastoral additions at the very end. But in case you're wondering, why does Andy seem a little bit more here this morning? It's because I'm reading. But I've, I've taken it and I've modified it for this morning, and, and I trust that it will be a blessing, but particularly the Word of God is a blessing. Nearsighted theology was the Corinthian church's problem. Some dismissed the resurrection of the dead, so their immorality displayed a YOLO, you only live once, view of life. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The resurrection doubt of some affected the rest of the church. Disbelief leavened immorality. And the Apostle Paul intervenes as a sort of spiritual ophthalmologist, recognizing that what the nearsighted Corinthians needed was a grand vision of God's glory to be culminated in God being all in all. To fix their eyes on that ultimate eschatological point would give them a Godward trajectory. However, in order for them to see that far-off point, they needed a corrective lens, and that lens is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 34, Paul puts resurrection glasses on the Corinthians in order to fix their theological vision. Paul makes a startling direct, starting, startlingly direct diagnosis in this first letter. He says, For some among you have no knowledge of God. These some, they are theologically sightless. However, their lack of vision is not passive as it is for a person who was born blind. Instead, their lack of vision is willful. Paul says this to their shame, implying that they are shutting their eyes to God. They are devoid of God knowledge, and it is their own fault. What is lacking in their knowledge of God is revealed in the theology of this passage, which informs my main idea. God is the definitive and ultimate end toward whom all of history is proceeding. The bodily resurrection of Christ is the proleptic, future-oriented lens that reveals several things, which we'll get into as we go through today. To describe God as the definitive and ultimate end toward whom all of history is proceeding requires some explanation. Let me try. First, the definitive and ultimate end encompasses both the absolute transcendent nature of God and the relational nature of God in his activity toward his creation. To speak of an end refers to the ultimate purpose for why a created thing was created. Second, the procession of history toward God understands that there is a temporal reality by which God's creation can relate to him. Using baseball as an analogy, every game has innings, elements of time that proceed to the game's finish. Every player understands that his or her end as a baseball player is to win within that time frame. However, the unexpected turn in the analogy is that the win or end for humans is God. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism explains, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
We must understand this Godward trajectory because the glory of God is the pinnacle of Paul's theology and practice in this passage and in all 1 Corinthians, finding its apex in Paul's doxology in chapter 15, verse 28, that God may be all in all. In 15, 20 through 34, verses 20 through 28 lead toward the apex, and verses 29 through 34 draw application from it. It is theological culmination that involves historical progression and Christian practice. It is the crucial knowledge of God that some in Corinth are closing their eyes to and others need to see through resurrection glasses. Let's look at the text, chapter 15, verses 20 through 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. First point, the bodily resurrection of Christ is the proleptic or future-oriented lens that reveals the future bodily resurrection of Christ's people. Up to this point in chapter 15, we haven't read it yet and, and we won't, but Paul has built a reasoned defense of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. He presents it as a vital component of the gospel, the good news that he has delivered to them in verse 4, and as the essential truth for the Corinthians' hope, for their own resurrection. However, some in the church of Corinth had declared that there was no resurrection of the dead. In verse 12, Paul addresses the nonsense of that opinion by logically binding the resurrection of the dead with the resurrection of Christ. If the dead are not raised, then Christ was not raised either. Paul repeatedly, eight times, uses an important verbal tense, the perfect tense in 15, 1 through 19, to make clear this point, that the resurrection of Jesus means something for the believers, brother and sister there in Corinth and for us. His resurrection means something for our present state of affairs, who we are today, what we are walking through today. Confident in his earlier apologetic for Christ's resurrection, Paul emphatically builds a perfect tense bridge to the rest of what he's going to say, making it perfectly clear that Christ has been raised, therefore there is hope for those who have fallen asleep. Question. Had the death of believers shaken the church because the resurrection had not yet occurred? That was certainly the case in the First Thessalonian church, or in the Thessalonian church, seen in the letter of, of the, to First Thessalonians. Such grief may have weakened the resurrection resolve of the Corinthians as well. However, Paul uses the Old Testament imagery of firstfruits to proleptically revive them. Firstfruits marking the start of the harvest as an offering of thanksgiving to God celebrated at Pentecost. What would happen is they would go out and they would gather the first portion of the harvest and bring it in and offer it to the Lord. That's the first fruits. But they were a sample of the remainder of the crop that was still to be harvested. The first fruits exemplified the quality of the harvest to come and 
were a pledge of more of the same to come. Hear this. Paul identifies Christ as the first fruits. As mentioned, this means something for our present state of affairs. First, that bodily death, like we talked about two weeks ago, is part of the resurrection equation. Paul could have immediately identified Christ as the first fruits of the resurrected. Instead, he identifies him as the first fruits of those who have died. Reminding the Corinthians that just as Christ experienced death, death awaits all believers. Instead of shaking their resurrection resolve, this identification with Christ should strengthen it. Later in this chapter, Paul says as much by appealing to the common knowledge that a seed does not produce life unless it dies. Second, the first fruits means that the bodily resurrection was just as sure for the believers who had already died as it was for Christ. In first fruit terms, because Christ has been harvested, the bodies of those still in the ground will be harvested as well. Verses 21 and 22 support this consistent one-to-one connection, each beginning with four. Both death and the resurrection of the dead come through a man. The human delivery of both makes resurrection just as tangibly possible for the human as death which is tangibly experienced regularly and apparently had been recently by the Corinthians. So as we're at my grandfather's memorial service, he knew Christ. Beautiful, beautiful sub-story to that is that after my grandmother died in 94, we as a family saw his love for Christ grow. His desire to be explicit in his faith in the gospel blossomed. Who had been a relatively quiet man regarding his faith up until that point became more of a verbal man when it came to expressing his trust in Christ. A beautiful thing. What Paul is saying is when you're sitting in that memorial service and you know that that person that, is, that has passed away is in Christ, yes, mourn, but at the same time say, just as real as this death is, so too is the resurrection to come. I'm here and I'm mourning. There is a one-to-one consistency here that there will be a day when the dead will be raised. That's what he is trying to say. It also pairs death and resurrection as physical, bodily experiences as opposed to spiritual, disembodied, spirits floating through the air experiences. Of the doctrinal significance of bodily resurrection, Wayne Grudem writes, Christ's resurrection ensures that we will receive perfect resurrection bodies as well. Verse 22 continues by categorizing. It says, As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. At first glance, the two alls may appear to present a strong argument for universalism, or in other words, the the belief that all will eventually be made alive. However, the identical construction of the two phrases here, in Adam and in Christ, makes all the difference. All who are in Adam die. We know that. Therefore, all humans die as Adam died. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis 5. In the same way, all who are in Christ will be made alive. 
Not all humans are in Christ. Therefore, not all humans will be made alive. But those in Christ will be going all the way forward to Revelation 20. Third, Christ as firstfruits means for the believer's present state of affairs that the resurrection of the dead is still to come. Paul again refers to Christ as the firstfruits in order to locate the church in the already not yet tension of the harvest season and to assure all those who are in Christ that they will experience the future harvest of resurrection at Christ's return. This is a sure hope because in Scripture, the status of the firstfruits is given to the remainder, as seen in Romans eleven sixteen, where the holy firstfruits dough makes the whole lump holy. The eschatological or future times intimacy of this picture is startling in that the one who has been resurrected, Jesus Christ, will return for those who are in him and belong to him, and he will share his resurrected status with them. Together, we will share his resurrection life. Christ will return for us. 1 John 3, 2 says, We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. This is the proleptic hope of glorification to which those who belong to Christ have long looked, as attested to by the Nicene Creed. I look forward to the resurrection of the dead. God has provided the already historical point of Christ's resurrection 2,000 years ago as the assurance of the not yet historical point when all who are in Christ will be raised. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump will resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Let's get back into the text. Verse 24, chapter 15. Then comes the end, when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. There's a lot of subjection mentioned there, all right? To sum it all up, the bodily resurrection of Christ is the future-oriented lens that reveals the future subjection or the ordering under is a way you could understand it. The ordering under of all things to God the Father. Having given assurance of the resurrection of the dead in Christ, Paul turns to the end, the final stage in the procession of history that leads directly to God as all in all. The dominant theme of Paul's treatment of the end in these verses is the subjection of all things to God the Father. That's why we heard the word so much. It's his dominant theme here, and it's realized in two steps. The first step is the subjection or the ordering of all things under Christ. This is accomplished by Christ's destruction of every rule and every authority and power. It has been established since Adam's rebellion attempt, rebellious attempt at self-rule in the garden. The shade of meaning for destruction is to cause to cease to exist, 
to cause to become nothing, to put an end to. This language pictures Christ as a Roman general would be seen, sent out by the emperor to quell any rebellion and restore the emperor's authority over all things. We see references to this role of Christ across the canon, across Scripture, beginning with the crushing of the serpent's head by Eve's offspring in Genesis 3, the dominion over all peoples granted to the Son of Man by the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, and the final destruction of the devil in Revelation 20. This future-looking quality of Christ's subjection of all enemies is that the last enemy to be, to be defeated will be death. Having displayed his victory over death by his own resurrection, the ultimate defeat of death in all lesser powers is sure to come. Let me step out of this for a minute. Consider this trajectory of history. Trajectory of history. It demands us to consider Am I rightly aligned with that trajectory? If that is where all of history is going, am I rightly aligned with that road? If not, there's hope. You may be wondering, how do I know? You know based on whether or not you have trusted Christ. You know whether or not you're rightly aligned by whether or not you're holding fast to the gospel. Let me point you back to chapter 15, verse 1. Paul is speaking again to these Corinthians who have lost their gospel minds to a certain extent. And he says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received. See the, chron the chronology here. I preached it to you. You received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul is warning them here, brothers and sisters. He is warning them, saying, you are not rightly aligned with this trajectory of history if you're not holding fast to the gospel. If you're not clinging to it, if you're not saying, the only way I have hope of being rightly aligned is through Christ. Look at the next verse. He says, for I deliver to you as of first importance. If I only had a few words to say, Paul's saying, I would say this, I deliver to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He's saying this, the way that every single human going back to Adam is misaligned with that trajectory is that we are sinners is that we on our own cannot be rightly aligned. We are not rightly aligned. In fact, we are most likely trying to find all other paths and have many other ideas of what life should be and where history should go. Paul does not give us that option. 
The scriptures, the word of God itself, does not give us that option. You see, he said here twice, accordance with the scriptures. Jesus died for sins in agreement with God's revealed word. He rose again to life in agreement with God's revealed word. Are you aligned with that trajectory? Would God call you his own? Or are you continuing to walk in sin rather than in, in repentance and faith? The simplicity of the gospel is clear. Trust that Christ died for your sins. Trust that his resurrection gives you life. And then trust that the path is going towards him. And that your future in Christ is secure. Getting back here. The first step was the subjection of all things, the right ordering of all things under Christ. The second step is the subjection of Christ to God the Father. This involves Christ handing over the kingdom to God the Father, as we see in verse 24. After having reigned until God the Father has put all things under Christ's feet. The thrust of these verses is Paul's Christological interpretation of Psalm 110 and Psalm 8. Christ as the redeemer of God's intentions for humanity that Adam had lost. Jesus is the agent of the fathers who is, last of all, subjected to the Father. You may say, what? how does that work? Christ is divine, is he not? Yes. This is not a diminishment of Jesus, but rather a glimpse into the functional subordination of the Trinity. Christ's role as covenantal son has always been to reflect the glory of the Father. Because all powers will have been vanquished by Christ at this time, the eternal order of all things is settled as Christ is subjected to God the Father, demonstrating perfect unity of glory for all eternity. It is right for Christ to sit down at the right hand of the Father. That is the display of the beauty and the mystery of the Godhead, of the Trinity. So what about Paul's doxological vision here that God may be all in all? Well, some people may read this as some sort of pantheistic absorption, like eventually God's just going to be everything. That's not what is happening here. Or that somehow humans would be melted into deity sometime in the future. Our personhood lost and God just being everything. Paul wants the Corinthians to see this as their culminating end as well. Because the theology of all in all is oriented towards God's people too. It's not about them melting into God, but about them becoming fully who God made them to be as his people. In Ephesians 1.23, Paul also uses all in all in a way similar, but with the added detail of the church body being full of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12.6, this same phrase refers to God who empowers all activities in everyone by his spirit. It seems that all who are in Christ experience a degree of all in all as the church. You and I are 
to, in a sense, experiencing the all in all of God even now. But that day is still to come when we will know the fullness of God as all in all. To be with God is our proper end. Earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 22 through 23, it seems to confirm this because Paul says, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ's is God's. This is the right ordering of everything. Back into the text, chapter 15, verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The bodily resurrection of Christ is the proleptic or future-oriented lens that reveals the resurrection ethics. You could substitute what you ought or ought not to do for the word ethics. The resurrection ethics of Christ's people as they await their resurrection. This puts some application to where we're at and where the Corinthians were. Paul has shown the Corinthians the future of God is all in all, using the corrective lens of the resurrection. However, he knows that healthy spiritual vision sees both far and near, both future and present. Therefore, the resurrection lens should produce resurrection ethics, what the people of Christ ought to do. And these ethics are both testimonies to Christ's resurrection in the past and a prophetic witness to their resurrection in the future. Paul intends for the set of rhetorical questions in these verses to be evidence that such ethics were actually already forming in them. On the Corinthians' end, they were being baptized on behalf of the dead. This curious practice has been much researched, yet it's still not fully understood. Regardless, Paul's point is that such an act only makes sense if the Corinthians actually believe in the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection was already informing their practice to a certain extent. But on Paul's end, he claims to be in danger every hour. That for their sake, he dies every day. And that he fought with beasts at Ephesus. Maybe he's using some hyperbole here to elevate the urgency of, the, of his exhortation. But Paul offers this extreme evidence of his own danger-filled gospel ministry as evidence that he too believed in the resurrection of the dead. Otherwise, why would he do what he does? Paul viewed death differently and he lived radically because of the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection to come. This is the ethical challenge to the Corinthians as well. Their doubt of the resurrection was producing you only live once ethics. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But such nearsighted hopelessness just doesn't cut it for resurrection people like us, brothers and sisters. Here are three future-oriented resurrection ethics based on what Paul has said here. He has three imperatives, things that he was telling them they must do. First of all, resurrection people 
ought to be aware of who influences them most. They ought to be aware of who influences them most. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Bad company does not mean the world in general, though it could. Don't dismiss that reality that who you're listening to, who you're watching, what you're doing with your time, the people that you are with are transforming your understanding of reality. But Paul is a little bit more precise here. He uses this bad company ruins good morals to actually say something more specific to these people that we need to hear too. The sum are those affiliated with the church who dismiss the resurrection and thereby dismiss the gospel that Paul made known. These are people that, if you read the rest of 1 Corinthians, are living YOLO. They have no moral compass because they have no resurrection hope. They are the some who deliberately shut their eyes to the knowledge of God, heinously denying the recent resurrection of Christ. They are within decades of the actual event of the resurrection. For Paul, that the Corinthians failed to realize this was to their shame. Paul is clear throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. Look among you. Look among you. Whose lives actually show that they are living for God to be all in all? And whose don't? Those who don't, be careful of them because their lack of resurrection hope can infiltrate your belief as well. It's dangerous. Second, resurrection people ought to wakefully wait for Christ's return. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor. This corresponds with what he had talked about earlier in the... In the uh, in verse 32, as well as the food and drink issues of chapter 8 and 11 earlier in 1 Corinthians. However, it also parallels Jesus' direct warning that we talked about last week to his disciples regarding his return and the tendency for even his people to fall asleep. Remember Jesus said, and what I say to you, I say to you all, stay awake. Third, resurrection people ought to stop sinning. Do not go on sinning. What does that sin look like? First, stop doubting the resurrection of Christ. Stop doubting that Jesus came, died, and rose again to claim a people for his own. Those disciples who saw the living Christ and walked with him for 40 days after his resurrection, died martyrs' deaths based on the truth, the veracity, the security, the reality of the resurrection of Christ. That was what birthed the church through the movement of the Holy Spirit, through witnesses to the resurrection. That's what made the church an unstoppable force. People who counted their lives as worthy to be lost for the reality and truth of the resurrection of Jesus. Are you experiencing resurrection life today? Jesus in, in um, Revelation, 
he calls himself the one who was and who is and who is to come. Lay that resurrection reality over our lives right now. We look at Christ as, yes, the resurrected one. We just sang about him. We'll sing about him a little bit longer at the end of the service. He resurrected. Fact. If he is the one who was and who is, what is the resurrection, the resurrected Christ doing in your life today? And do you believe that he can resurrect people around you? Do you? Because he is also the one to come. And so then you begin to look at people differently. You begin to look at people as not just flesh and blood, but as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, we don't regard anyone by flesh and blood anymore because the resurrection has changed our viewpoint of people. We look at them as souls that are also on their way to meet God one way or another someday. So first, stop doubting the resurrection in turn, and in turn, the sovereign rule of God over all things. Because without the resurrection, none of the rest of this stuff is true. Second, stop using your body immorally, as described earlier in the letter. Sexual immorality throughout the Old Testament, brothers and sisters, is so closely tied with the return of Christ. I should say sexual morality, but Paul often says Stop being sexually immoral because the day is coming. It's startling how often he talks about be sexually pure because the day is coming. Stop using your body immorally in cooperation with rebel powers that will be defeated. Our bodies are meant to glorify God, chapter 6, verse 20 of 1 Corinthians, in all that we do, chapter 10, verse 31. Therefore, Let's use our bodies in a way that is a proleptic witness to the resurrection that is to come, allowing our bodies even now to be under subjection to Christ until his return. See, our sin is stepping out of that right order. Our repentance and faith and our Romans 6 like offering of the instruments of our body to him as instruments of righteousness, the members of our body as instruments for righteousness. This is coming back under that right order and saying, God, everything is headed towards you. Use my body for everything you would, would want me to use it for, what, how you would want to use it until that day. My hands, my mind, my emotions, my sexual organs, my feet, my everything. I offer legitimately, daily to you. Order me rightly in subjection to yourself. Please, Jesus. In a positive ethical summary, the church with resurrection lenses ought to be people of Christ who explicitly believe the resurrection together. They wait together for Christ's return. They wake each other when we forget and we use our bodies and the body in ways that are subject to Christ. Now, you're, might, you might be saying, but I came here wondering about like, what the resurrection body is going to be like. Oh, the Corinthians were wanting that too. All right? I'm going to give some, paint with some broad strokes here. Let's go to verse 35. 
But someone will ask, and that someone might be you, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but it's a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star is different from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. He's about to promise us, he's promising us glory in some way. He begins to explain it. What is sown, <clears throat> excuse me, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. Man, Grandpa, when he passed, when I saw him in that hospital room about five days before he passed, he was extremely perishable in ways that you never expect to see when you don't see death very often. His body was truly wasted away. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. See these connections that he's making back to earlier in the chapter? With seeds being sown here, he's talking about seeds being sown in the logical reality that when a seed is sown, death, that seed sprouts life. This is the promise for all who are in Christ. And then he's talking about Adam here again, and he's saying the first Adam became a living being. God breathed life into Adam, and he became alive. But the last Adam, a.k.a. Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is, not the, it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from of the earth, Adam, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, us. And as, the man is, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of, of heaven. If you're in Christ, us. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, hear this promise. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. As clearly as you have the same physical emotional and spiritual features as Adam, we will also have the same features of Christ. It's an incredible promise. How could we even assume that that would be true? Not that we will become Jesus, but we will so perfectly reflect the image of Jesus. We will be so incredibly transformed that we will have a resurrection body like his. We will bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, 
But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Let's say Jesus comes back tomorrow. Grandpa's body, cremated. But the God who made Adam out of dust can raise that dust to life and make it imperishable. But unless we'll, we'll probably all still be alive tomorrow, if Jesus would come back tomorrow, those of us who are in Christ would be raised. Actually, I, take, I make this point. All people are raised from the dead. There's a judgment of the righteous and the wicked. Jesus will raise all of us who are in Christ, even if we have not yet died, to imperishability. When the trumpet sounds, Grandpa's going to have his body back, but better. Serious upgrade. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? We're alive again. Hello, death. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We will bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus Christ. What are some ways that this might look? Jesus had a resurrected body. All those who are in Christ will one day have resurrection bodies. Grandpa will have a resurrected body. Jesus, as we look at those 40 days after his resurrection, he was able to eat. He was able to drink. He was able to speak. He had a physical body that Thomas touched. Scars, in fact, on that physical body. He was recognizable by the people that loved him. And he recognized them. He knew his friends. He had memories of what had happened. And he walked through walls, apparently. Okay? This is, this is what I want to lay out for you, is that our resurrection bodies are not these super spiritual, purified, so I never have any, like, memories of earth or memories of relationships. No. No. Praise God, no. We will be upgraded to the image of Christ. We will know each other. We will live together. We will worship him together. I'll worship with grandpa together. These are the realities of the resurrection. These are the realities of eternity. And we will be perfect. Total victory over sin and death. The the. Perhaps this is the most incredible understanding of bearing the image of the man of heaven is that it does not mean that we will forget what sin was like. There will not be any temptation. The tempter will be done and our flesh will have been fully redeemed. However, there will be in the presence of God no true allure to sin. We will be so Captured. Our affections will be so permanently stirred that for eternity, sin's like sin. What? What were we thinking back then? We have God. Praise God that through Christ, that is our future. The body resurrection of Christ is also the proleptic lens that reveals whispers 
of the eternal wonders of being at home. It talks about in Revelation, it's not that we're just going to be floating on clouds somewhere, but the new Jerusalem will come down to earth. He is going to make everything new. We are going to experience life that is beyond Eden. Beyond Eden. Adam and Eve never knew the darkness before they walked into the darkness. We know the darkness, and now we have been saved into the light. That eternal, physical, real reality is what we are going to experience. God with man will now be residing. We'll be experiencing him in the fullness of his all in all, all the time. Earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, he's not talking directly about what is to come, but I think it's still a good principle that can, even as you meditate on what heaven is like, this can be a, a, a good verse to memorize and to allow the Lord to use you to awaken your heart towards home. Paul says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul is talking about the revealing of the mystery of the gospel, that God himself would come down as a baby, live a life of perfection, go to a cross that he did not deserve but you and I do, and die so that we can be forgiven, fully sanctified, full our sin totally taken care of, all the judgment going on Christ, that he would rise again and then one day come again and raise us all to life. The wonder of that mystery None of us could have guessed it. And none of the prophets did. They longed to see how God was going to do this, but they just didn't know. The gospel is a revelation of a mystery. And the mystery that is to come is on par with that and greater. That is what our reality will be like for eternity upon eternity. One way that I often think about it personally is that um, for the baby that's in utero, that baby has no idea what life looks like just an inch outside of that tummy. All right? The, the barrier is so thin. But a reality that is beyond that baby's comprehension there's no way you could say to that baby, hey, baby, this is what things are like out here, and that baby would have a context of understanding what it's actually going to be like to be alive. For us, it's similar, I think. That, that barrier is so thin. If you're in Christ, it's the, the thinness of your last breath that could happen today. It's the thinness of Jesus coming back in his good timing. It's the thinness of you could be in the presence of God today and your understanding of reality will be blown. That's the beauty of what is to come. I want to just give you two more things. I want to read from two different, two different authors that I think will help bring some on-the-ground understanding to this. D.A. Carson writes this. He says, Christians make their evaluations in the light of eternity, 
the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. 1 John 2.17. Carson says, pity the person whose self-identity and hope rest on transient things. Ten billion years into eternity, it will seem a little daft to pull yourself up over the, to puff yourself up over the car you now drive. The amount of money or education you have received. The number of books you own. The number of times you had your name in the headlines. Whether or not you have won an Academy Award will then prove less important than whether or not you have been true to your spouse. Whether or not you were a basketball star will be less significant than how much of your wealth you generously gave away. The one who does the will of God lives forever. See, when we have an eternal perspective, we begin to not dismiss the things of life, but have new eternal perspective on the things of life. Troy was talking about it some in the, in the class downstairs today, and um, I think a, a good point that Edwards tried to live out was that if we're looking for eternal things to invest in, they're both right here. Things that will last, one, is Christ's church. So we're not just talking about Edgewater, but we're talking about his church universal. That's going to last. So anything you do to invest in the body of Christ is eternal, is valuable in that way. And within that, all souls are eternal, whether they know Christ or not. So anything you do to invest in someone else is also an eternal work. Also is a reminder that my longing is for home. C.S. Lewis writes this. In there, this is from the weight of glory, in there and beyond nature, we shall eat of the tree of life. At present, if we are reborn in Christ, the spirit in us lives directly on God, but the mind and still more the body receives life from him at a thousand removes through our ancestors, through our food, through the elements. The faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the worlds are what we now call physical pleasures and even thus filtered, they're too much for our present management. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead, that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating. Yet that, I believe, is what lies before us. The whole man is to drink from the fountain of joy. As St. Augustine said, the rapture of the saved soul will flow over into the glorified body. In the light of our present specialized and depraved appetites, we cannot imagine this. And I warn everyone, most seriously, almost not to try. But it must be mentioned to drive out thoughts even more misleading, thoughts that what is saved is a mere ghost or, what the reason, or that the risen body lives in numb insensibility. The body was made for the Lord and these dismal fancies are wide of the mark. He's basically saying what we were just talking about. We will have real bodies, real experience. But then he concludes by this. He says, Meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown, and tomorrow is Monday morning. A cleft has opened in the pitiless walls of the world, and we are invited to follow our great captain inside. The following him is, of course, the essential point. 
That being so, it may be asked, what practical use is there in the speculations of heaven which I have been indulging? I can think of at least one such use. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back. Did you hear that? The person sitting next to you, the potential glory of him or her should be laid on your back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. Listen to this. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you say it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations, glory or horror. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper, circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, even all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, all the things that we think are so important, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Let's pray. Oh God, would you give us a longing for home that only your spirit can grant. We thank you, Jesus, for coming down to save us for yourself. And we look forward to your return. In your name, amen.